Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you just for the opportunity that we have to be able to gather together as men and be able to open up your word. And Father, as a result, we pray, Lord, that you would use your word and use this character of Gideon. That we would be challenged in our own life, that we would be challenged in our walk with you. May your spirit have free reign in our life. Father, may everything that we do and say truly bring honor and glory to you, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. What's it going to take for you to really fully trust God? I mean, really to get out there and be all in rather than just waffling around in between not trying to figure out exactly what you're going to do. What are you really holding on to that's keeping you from fully trusting God and walking with him on a daily basis? Is it fear? Is it pride? Why is it that we are so ashamed of Christianity? And why is it that we're so hesitant for standing up for God and walking with him? You know, I've been involved in ministry for 30-some years now, been involved with a lot of men over the past 30 years. Oftentimes I've gotten into relationships with individuals that go for a period of time where we would be in somewhat of a discipleship type of environment where I would challenge them and they would challenge me and we'd uh, get involved in some Bible study and kind of breakfast and things like that. Some years ago, there was one guy that stands out in my mind. He came up to me and he said, hey, would, would it be all right if we got together? I said, oh, this is great. This guy is talented. He is gifted. He is talented. He is powerful. He could do some damage for Jesus Christ. I was, I was truly excited about getting together with this guy. I I said, this guy is dynamic. I mean, he has got all of the package there to to really do do some real stuff for Jesus. So we got together. Now, anytime you get into one of those relationships, just kind of a ministry note, anytime you get into one of those relationships, there will be a squeeze that comes on. Something will begin to squeeze you. As soon as you start getting serious about Jesus Christ, there will be a squeeze And I think that squeeze is a God-designed squeeze. Because anytime you squeeze something, something's going to come out the top. You know? And you're you're always looking to kind of see what's going to come out the top. When that squeeze comes on, what's coming out the top? Is it love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Is that what's coming out the top? Or is it bitterness, discontentment, anger, those types of qualities that come out the top when that squeeze comes on. Well, sure enough, I started dialoguing with this individual and that squeeze came on. And the squeeze really is one of those things of so whether or not you're truly going to follow me, are you really going to trust me for to meet your every need, or are you going to choose to do it in your own flesh and in your own power? 
And for this guy, the squeeze came on, and the squeeze was in relationship to his ministry and in relationship to his work, and whether or not he believed that God was going to be able to provide for all of his financial needs in that time of squeeze, or whether or not he was going to choose in the flesh to really choose to go his own independent way and try to solve it in the flesh. Now, being down that road many times, I recognize the squeeze. You recognize that there's nothing really that I can do other than to pray for that guy and to continually say, trust God, trust God, trust God, trust God, that he knows best for your life. There will always be that faith gap where you put it down on paper and what you see that you think that you need and what you see that you have, there will always be a gap. And I call that the faith gap. And that faith gap is there as to whether or not you are going to trust God to meet that gap in whatever area it is, whether or not you're going to trust God to meet that gap, or whether or not you're going to decide, I know better than God, and you're going to try to do it in the flesh. Well, as the squeeze got tighter, he decided that he knew better. And he left. And it broke my heart. Because here was a talented, gifted guy who basically chose to shake his fist at God, not trust God, and decide to go his own way. And the question is, is why in the world would he do that? Paul had Demas, if you remember, in 2 Timothy 4.10, it said, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. And see, having loved this present world, what basically he's saying is that this present world basically can meet sufficiently my needs better than God can. And so we choose to latch on to that thinking that that's going to satisfy my every desire rather than following God. And this guy did it. He took off. By the way, you know, one of the great fears of mine, this is kind of an aside, one of my great fears of the church today is being very in love with the present world. And see, what we do is we kind of like the world and so what we do is we kind of we gravitate towards the, to the world and then kind of sprinkle it with a little bit of Jesus to make it all right. And what God is asking is for a radical dependence upon him to follow him no matter what the cost. Paul had Demas. I had this guy that basically when the squeeze came on, he deserted me. Ended up not going into ministry, ended up not actually following Christ. He went completely off. He's living in Denver now. Still keep up with him a little bit, but chose to go his own way but what's the problem here what's the bottom root problem what's the what's the thing that they're holding on to and the bottom line is what we're going to see today that flaw that comes into the the faithful and the flawed the flaw is really doubt you doubt that God is going to be able to provide everything that you need and so you choose and you decide that you know better and because of that, because of that doubt aspect, that little bit of doubt in your mind, you abandon 
What's it going to take for you to really be fully committed and follow Jesus Christ no matter what the cost? You know, doubt means actually standing in two ways. In your notes, you'll see some of the definitions that I've given to you about doubt. Doubter is ultimately a man whose belief and action do not coincide. You say one thing, yet you do something else. You say, I'm really committed to Jesus Christ, yet you continue to dabble this particular way. Yeah, I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, yet when things really get into the crunch and the squeeze comes on, I'm going to actually do something else. So your actions really don't follow your beliefs he doubts himself he begins to doubt his own credibility his behavior does not fit with god's behavior it means not fully trusting god for what you're facing and i love that passage in james 13 where it says you know god's wisdom is nothing wavering or conflicting a wise man is unwavering impartial without uncertainty and you may be here and you may have some doubts about either God, maybe scripture, maybe Jesus Christ, maybe the assurance of salvation. And because of that doubt, missing out on God's best in your life because you basically believe that you think you can do better and you think you can outthink God and you can outfigure him out And because of that, satisfaction is not found in what God says in his word, but you really believe that, hey, I'm going to maneuver this thing and manipulate the, the word of God so that it really fits my comfort zone because actually I know better. What's it going to take? What's it going to take for for you to really be convinced that God knows best? Doubt can cripple can cripple our effectiveness for Jesus Christ. Can cripple it. Turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6, where we're going to look at a, a man who had a crippling effect of doubt. He was a double-minded man. He was standing in two ways. Judges chapter 6. As we enter into Gideon's life, Israel was a defeated, it was a discouraged, it was a helpless nation. It was filled with fears and it was filled with doubt. But I think we've probably all been there, which is kind of one of those reasons that Gideon comes into our life. This was now the fourth cycle. If you notice in verse 1, Judges chapter 6, it says, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. This was nothing new to the nation of Israel. Israel was in a cycle. I like to look at the book of Judges and say, and kind of put my little quotes around it, and the quotes really become, what's wrong with this picture? Because they get into this cycle of doing what they think is best. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. One of those themes that goes through the book of Judges. And they fall into sin. And so God, in judgment of the sin, takes them into servitude. They are then brought into servitude from some aggressor nation to a place where they then cry out to God for salvation. 
And they say, God, save us from this oppression. So God, in his grace and in his mercy, he begins to raise up a judge, a deliverer, who then delivers them from the servitude that they are now serving under under that particular nation. And then they have a series of peace as a judge now judges the nation for a period of years. And then the judge dies and they go right back into the cycle. Now, you would think that this, they would get the idea after a while that God's faithfulness and God's goodness and God's grace and God's mercy and God's best is in following God's will. But they didn't get it. And so consequently, they go through this cycle. But you know, that cycle is a lot like our life. We, we think we know best. And we continue to say, I know better than God. And so we go through this cycle. Lord, deliver me from this. And we never get the picture. And that's exactly what happened with the nation of Israel. Israel, because of their sin, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, verse 1, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. And so now we come to the place where they are under the hands of the Midianites. This is now the fourth cycle in this cycle that we see of Gideon and the judges as the nation of Israel goes. And Israel still has not yet gotten it. Yet God in his grace and mercy raises up a most unlikely deliverer. And that is the person of Gideon. Gideon is flawed yet faithful, flawed, yet faithful. This was now the seventh year that those desert-dwelling Midianites had swept in off of the desert to sweep and to strip the land of all of the wheat. The Midianites were a powerful people. They had a long-range, new, swift-attack weapon that they brought with them named the camel. The camel was the new swift attack, long-range attack weapon because it could sweep in off of the desert, strip the land of all of the wheat, and then go back into the desert before anybody was able to catch him. And this was now the seventh year that they came in and stripped the land. Where do we find the, where do we find the Israelites? Well, the Israelites, they were, they were in the shelters, a mountain clefts, the caves and the strongholds in verse 2. But God in his grace sends a prophet and he says, hey, the only reason that this has happened to you is because of your own sin. You choose to do it your own way rather than trusting in me. And consequently, where do we find Gideon? We find him Gideon threshing out wheat, verse 11, in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. In other words, they had taken all the wheats. The only thing that was left was a very small piece of wheat that they were, he was going to be able to beat out in a wine press. Typically, you were out on top of a hill with a whole mess of this stuff, but the Midianites had taken all of it. All we have left is this little stuff, and I'll beat out whatever I can find in a wine press hiding really from the Midianites. What happens, verse 11, is an angel of the Lord. Who is that angel of the Lord? Jesus Christ himself 
a theophany. Jesus Christ himself comes and he says to Gideon, hey, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Mighty warrior? Basically, I'm hiding from my life in a wine press, beating out whatever little bit of wheat I can be able to find. Scared to death, I'm going to be discovered. And yet God is able to look past what we think we are, and he's able to tell what's really he's going to be able to do with Gideon. Gideon does not look like a mighty warrior at this point. And Gideon is anywhere, not anywhere close to being a mighty warrior. But see, that's what doubt does to you. He was plagued with this thing of doubt. And consequently, because he had this flaw of standing in two ways, double-mindedness, not knowing which way to turn, not knowing who to trust, not knowing which way he was going to go, because of that, there were some devastating effects. Notice, some of the devastating affairs. First, verse 13, doubt causes you to whine, complain, and blame God. Look at what it says in verse 13. Well, go back to verse 11. The angel of the Lord comes, sits by the oak, an Ophrah, belonged to Johash the Abiezrite, where the son of Gideon was threshing wheat in the wine press. And the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And now we get into this, what I refer to as the motorboat syndrome. But, 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 but. <laughs> Probably familiar with the motorboat syndrome. But sir, verse 13, now this is the angel of the Lord. Now, what's it going to take for you? For Gideon, here the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, if, but sir, Gideon replies, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to me? Where are all of his wonders that our father told us about when he said, did not the Lord bring you out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the wine of Midian. Wine, complain, oh. And we begin to rationalize our own behavior. But we do that a lot, don't we? Why has this happened to me, Lord? If I'm truly supposed to follow you, then why has all of this happened to me? I'm not satisfied. I'm not content. I think I know better than you. So we whine, we complain, we blame God. You see, God's an easy guy to be able to blame for our own shortcomings. The things that got him there was his own sin. But God's an easy one to blame. It's God's fault. God did this. This obviously can't be God's will. I'm not happy. And see, that now it all becomes me. I want to be happy. Why am I here in this wine press? Why am I doing this? You know, I'm not satisfied. This isn't the church for me. This isn't the woman for me because I'm not happy. Wine. Ah, whoa, whoa, gosh. And so we have these seeds of dissatisfaction, this lack of contentment. I think I said in the last time I was... Uh, 
in the pulpit in, in church, I, I was talking to a, a, a person, a lady actually, that was going down a path that was clearly not God's will for her life. And you start bringing out these things, you know, these, these passages that kind of show her that. And finally she gets to the place of, I don't want to think about God right now. I just want to be happy. And see, that's where it all ends up. I think I know better than God. I think I can do it better than God. I'm not going to obey what he has to say in his word. I think I can do better. So we whine and blame. Are you currently blaming God for whatever circumstance you're in right now? You begin to whine and complain towards God. God's an easy one to blame. There's no two ways about it. The problem is, is you're not going to probably be able to figure it all out. The question is, is really, how are you going to choose to respond? Are you going to choose to respond in faith and trust and dependence upon God, or are you going to shake your fist at God and say that you can do it better than he? That's really the bottom line. And what God is asking is faithfulness and dependence upon him. So the first effect is we begin to whine and complain and bang God. But secondly, there's a second effect. Doubt causes you to question your adequacy and your abilities. Notice verse 14. Right after the Lord appears to him, Gideon begins this motorboat syndrome. Verse 14, the Lord turned to him and he says, go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian. Am I not sending you? So he's saying, here is your commission. Here is God's will. This is what I want you to do. Clear as a bell. Verse 15. But Lord, Gideon said, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I am the least in the family. I can't do it. I don't have the gifts and abilities. That's not my thing. That's not the way I was gifted. It's not my gift mix. That's somebody else's thing. Let them do it. Moses said the same thing. Hey, I want you to go take the nation of Israel out. And Moses goes, well, have somebody else do it. (laughs) That's not my thing. Gideon, I can't do that. I'm not gifted that way. My family's the least. And you start going through this, but, 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 but. God says, I want you to deliver Midian out of Israel out of Midianite's hands. But Lord, and you start to begin to do one of those self-checks of, I'm not adequate, I'm not able to do this. And here he's got the angel of the Lord. What's it going to take for you? Turn over to Matthew chapter 28, real quick. Matthew chapter 28. The passage that haunts me, Matthew chapter 28, it's called the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28. And I want to kind of give you the kind of the main point that I'm going to come back to here in a, in a second. But notice verse 16, Matthew chapter 28. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some, what, some what did what? Some doubted. Some doubted. The word there for doubt 
is the Greek word called distazo. It's, it's one of those words where you can almost hear the confusion. It means standing in two ways, not knowing which way to go, standing at a crossroads. And you can almost hear, hear, the, hear the confusion in the word distazo. You know, some worship, but some were distazo. You know, they didn't know which way to go. But instead of the Lord, now does the Lord know that some were doubting? Absolutely, the Lord knew that. But does he stand there and talk to them about their distazoness? No. What does he do? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Surely, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Did Jesus know that they were dealing with that distazoness in their life, that uncertainty as to which way he was going to go? Yes. Does he talk to them about their distazoness? No. What does he do? He says, here, you want to dispel your doubts? Be obedient to my command. You do this. You see, your doubts will always be dispelled in obedience to God's commands. You want to see God work? Be obedient. You see, God's going to show up when you're following his word. And when you are faithfully walking with him, that's when you're going to be able to see God work. And so Jesus, when he gets up there, some worship, some word distazo, but we're not going to talk about your distazoness. You know what we're going to do? Here, do this. Go make disciples. But how many are here? Well, I don't know if I can do that. I'm not gifted enough. That's not my thing. I'm not wired that way. I'm not bent that way. That's not who I am. Not only do you begin to whine and complain, but you begin to question your own ability. And this, by the way, this command that Jesus gives is not too far from the angel's command to Gideon. I want you to deliver the nation of Israel from the Midianites' hands. Jesus saying to you, go make disciples. What's, what are you holding on to? What's keeping you from fully trusting God and being obedient to what he has to say? Thirdly, notice that doubt causes you to seek some sort of confirmation for your faith. Back in Judges chapter 6, verse 17, the Lord says, verse 16, he says, I will be with you. Same thing as what he says in Matthew chapter 20. He says, I will be with you. And you will strike down all of the Midianites together. Gideon replies, well, if you have found, you know, he's still arguing with God here. I mean, this is fairly clear from God's perspective as to what was going to go on. But Gideon, he's still arguing with God. You know, if I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it's really you talking to me. What do you mean? He's standing right there. What's it going to take? What's it going to take? 
But see, when we have that flaw, basically we're going we're gonna to come up with any type of excuse to try to make it not happen. Give me a sign. And see, we all desire some sort of confirmation of our faith. We all want some sort of sign. But what's that going to look like? Ultimately, when you start looking for a sign, you're not really quite sure, and you begin to rationalize it away, you're not really quite sure whether or not it's really God talking to you or whether or not it was a bad pizza the night before. Because we're not sure whether or not we're looking for some miraculous appearance or whether we're looking for some sort of liver quiver. And when I start getting that liver quiver and the quiver in my liver, maybe that's God speaking, maybe it's not. How are you going to know? What's it going to take? And so consequently, we seek out some sort of, did God really call me? And the problem is, is it really distracts you from what God really wants you to do and what he really wants you to be. All of a sudden now, this becomes an, a distraction and an excuse for not really following what God wants you to do. God's really made his will and his purpose pretty clear, really clear in scripture. Yet we're a prideful people. Continue to do evil in the sight of the Lord choosing to do it our own way rather than fully following in him. Also, doubt causes you to be fearful. Verses 18, Gideon goes, goes in and he says, uh, hey, I'm going to bring an offering. So the angel of the Lord tips the offering, verse 21, touches the meat, the unleavened bread, fire flares from the right, consuming the meat, everything else. Then Gideon realized, verse 22, realized that it was the angel of the Lord. And he realized this is a theophany. This is Jesus Christ himself. All of a sudden then he becomes fearful. Ah, sovereign Lord, I've seen the angel of the Lord. But the Lord says in, you will not, do not be afraid. You are not going to die because if you see the Lord, you will die. But you will not die. So Gideon builds an altar. But then verse 25, notice what God then tells him to do. Now, here, the angel of the Lord comes, stands there, consumes the fire. Gideon realizes who in the world he's talking to. You would think by this time that he would be, I can't do anything. I can't do anything. I have the Lord with me. So, verse 25, that same night, that same night, not a week from now, not two weeks, but that same night, same night that everything else has happened. The Lord says to him, take a second bull of your father's herd, the one seven-year-old, tear down your father's altar to Baal. You want me to do what? I want you to tear down that altar. I want you to go after it. Tear down the altar. Well, he's obedient. He does. Verse 27, Gideon took 10 of his servants. But notice, he did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. You know, doubt does that to you. Doubt causes you to be fearful. 
And here, you mean I'm going to have to tear down my father's altar? Yeah. Now you would think that after the angel of the Lord had appeared to him, consumed the thing with fire, he realized that this was the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord says, I will be with you. Go tear down that altar. Whoa. Doubt. And all of a sudden, we begin to roll back a little bit. But that's not too far about where we live. You know, I don't know if I can really stand up for Christ in the marketplace. You see, people might think that I'm weird. People might think that I'm weak. See, religion's only for the women, not for the men. If I stand up for Jesus Christ in the marketplace, if I stand up for really what I believe... It might not be politically correct. I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to be seen as some sort of goofball. I want everybody to like me. So we begin to rationalize. Well, I can't really, you know, say what Scripture has to say because it might come across as being a little too harsh. I don't want to offend them. But you know, you're working for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I love when Paul went into the Thessalonians and he began to preach the gospel and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, you know, I was more concerned with what God thinks than what men think. And you begin to realize, you know, there's something else going on here. It's not just about you and it's not just about the other people. It's about God. And I'm more concerned with what he thinks and what other people think. And I'm going to serve him rather than be so concerned about me. I remember some years ago, I was, I've been in chaplaincy. About 1982, I got in the hospital chaplaincy. And I went into a, an administrator's. I was setting up this hospital for some students at Dallas Seminary. I went into this administrator's office and he was a Navy guy, a prior service Navy guy. And so we kind of hit it off. I was prior service uh, with the Air Force. He was Navy. And so we kind of started talking a little bit. And finally, you know, as we became a little bit more comfortable, he kind of leaned across the, the table at me. And he kind of got right in my face. And he says, I don't want any proselytizing going on in my hospital. I said, well, you know, what's your fear? You know, your fear is that I'm going to come in, I'm basically going to take advantage of the situation and try to manipulate the situation for my own personal gain. That is unethical, and I can assure you that nothing I do will be unethical. On the other hand, I am a conservative evangelical hospital chaplain, and when those questions and situations come up, I am going to approach it from a conservative evangelical perspective. He looked at me. I can live with that. <laughs> you see, you don't, have to, you don't have to change who you are. You can be very gracious in who you are. You don't have to change your perspective. You can, you can be very gracious. You can stand up for what you believe in the marketplace. But fear starts to creep in there, and, and Gideon, all of a sudden, you know, he becomes fearful as to what it is, and it, consequently, it, it hinders him 
from really being able to express what God wants him to do. Lastly, doubt causes you to set out a fleece. Verse 36, notice what happens. Gideon begins to. Now, after all of this, after all of this, Gideon still has doubt. And in verse 36, Gideon says to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, in other words, he already knows God's will. He has now got so much doubt in his mind that he is now beginning to question it. Look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there's dew only on the fleece and on the ground only, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. He knew what God's will was. Well, and that is what happened. Verse 38, Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. But then the aha moment, oh my, how stupid am I, that if there was dew, typically the fleece would retain the dew while all of the ground would become dry. And Gideon says, well, that was stupid, I can't really tell whether or not that was God or not. Well, let's flip it around. So he flips it around, and then he says, "Then do not be angry with me, but I'm stupid. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. See, that would be the better test, obviously. If there was dew, then the, the, the fleece, which would retain the moisture, if it's dry and all the ground, then I know it's from you. That night, God is so gracious, isn't he? Puts up with so much from us. He does it. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry and the ground was covered with dew. God in his graciousness. Notice a few things about fleece setting. You know, we, we like to do that. Well, maybe I'll just set out a fleece and see if they... Notice a few things. One, Gideon was not ignorant of God's will. He knew what God's will is. And in a lot of cases, we know what God's will is. Go make disciples. Be obedient. Love your neighbor. I mean, there are multiple commands here that God's calling us to be obedient to in scripture it's not it's not hidden from us it's very clearly in his word and what he's asking of us is to be obedient Gideon knew he was not trying to discern God's will he had doubts He was not ignorant of God's will. Fleece setting is evidence of doubt, not faith. Faith trusts God. Fleece setting is just an evidence of your doubt. I'll set out a fleece. Yeah, you really have doubt of what God really wants you to do, don't you? Thirdly, fleece setting is really dictating to God. Basically, at this point, you're saying, I want you to now conform to my standards here. I want you to goof up nature for me. Now you begin to dictate towards God rather than coming in submission to his will and being obedient. Lastly, fleece setting really doesn't solve the problem because now you can begin to manipulate this thing the whole way. Hey, Lord, just just make the, the, the fleece wet and the, dry, the ground. Oh, oops, that was stupid. Okay, flip it around. 
you know, well, was that really God or did some animal lay on top of the fleece to make it dry? You know, and you begin to, you can play this doubt game all the way. Was it really God or was it not? See, Gideon ultimately was doubting God. Gideon had the angel of the Lord come. Fire consumed his offering. Talking directly to him, yet he still had that nagging doubt. What's it going to take for you? What's it going to take for you to really fully be committed and trust God in whatever you're doing? What's keeping you, and this is where I want to leave you, what's keeping you from fully being devoted to Christ? What's it going to take? What's it going to take? God has given you everything that you need in Scripture. Giving you the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You have been regenerated, indwelt, baptized, and sealed by the Holy Spirit. What's it going to take? Someone rising from the dead? He already has done that. What more? Why is it that you think that you know better? After all of these years, after scripture, after scripture, after scripture of of reading about what's going on with, with men that are flawed yet faithful, God continuing to prove himself faithful, what's it going to take? James 1, 6, let me just read to you James chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. James chapter 1, verse 6, but when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. You hear what that's saying? He who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That's not what a man is. Man's willing to stand up for what he believes. That man should not think he will receive anything. He's double-minded, double-minded, unstable in all of his ways. That's right. Who can he trust other than himself? Thirdly, your doubts will always be dispelled in obedience to God's command. Be obedient. Listen to what he has to say. Get into his word. Trust God. Gideon's a double-minded man. God's called you. to impact the world for Jesus Christ. What's holding you back? What's holding you back? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reality of Gideon. Father, we pray that as we come into situations even today, 
that we would be mindful of who you are and what you've called us to do. Father, may we continue to walk with you moment by moment, enjoying your presence in constant prayer and obedience to what you called us. Father, you've given us that promise that you will be with us always as we are obedient to your great commission. Father, may we experience that intimacy with you that truly brings life and fulfillment. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.